Brothers and sisters, I ask that you please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes to us from the book of Revelation. So we'll be looking at chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 6 and verses 1 to 8. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's Word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be like a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Thus far is a reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. Brothers and sisters, oftentimes for our minds to be set at ease, for our minds to be comforted when uncertainty comes, we generally will ask the question and look for the answer to when. When. That question, when answered, oftentimes releases us of all that anxiety that we have built up. It releases us of all that that fear and worry that plagues us. And I'll give you an example of exactly what I mean. Uh, we've all probably traveled. If you've traveled long distances in a car or plane, after a while, if you're sitting, you become unsettled. And what's the, what's the question that you ask to, to, to settle yourself? It is, when will we be there? Right? When you find that, the answer to that question, then usually you calm down, right? You, you settle down knowing, knowing the answer. Or we can take for this example, if, if you've ever been promised maybe a promotion at your job, and they say, it's going to come real soon, but month after month after month passes and you hear nothing. So you become antsy. And so you, you go to management and you go and you ask them what? You say, when will this promotion happen? Right? You're looking for that answer. And once you get the answer, what happens? You feel better now. Right? You, you, you're, no, you're no longer antsy. You're no longer uh, anxious or or worrisome, but now you have been comforted having that question of when answered. 
And we see this same desire to know the when, even in the Scriptures. You know, we see this in the Olivet Discourse in uh, Matthew 24, Mark 16, Luke 21, where Jesus says to the disciples, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Right? He, he says that to the apostles. And what is their response to Jesus? Right in Mark chapter 13, verse 4. Tell us when these things will be. They want to know when. Or think about, consider for a second, Acts chapter 1. As Jesus, prior to His ascension, tells them, commands them, you, you stay here in Jerusalem because in a short time, the promised Holy Spirit will be sent to you. And so He tells them to, to stay there in anticipation for the indwelling of the Spirit. And what is their question to Him after He says that? They say to Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What, what, what kind of question is that? That's a win question. right? Because they're anticipating that He will restore an earthly kingdom to Israel. And so they're asking, when this happens, is this when the kingdom will be restored? They're they're anxious about this question that's swirling in their minds. And the solution to their anxiety, they think, is to know the win answer to that question. But what does Jesus respond to them when they ask Him this question? Later on, He will respond to their curiosity with this. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. I mean, even today, brothers and sisters, we have people who want to know when Christ will return. And so what do they do? They, they match world events to the, to the book of Revelation and, and try to see if they can decipher when He will return. I mean, how many false prophets have there been in recent memory who have predicted exact days and times when Christ will return, only all to be proven false? But why do you think we all know about those people? Because they've amassed large followings. And why do they amass large followings? Because a question that plagues people who read the Bible and who say they believe in Jesus Christ is, when will He return? Even today, as we look out in all the world and we see chaos, and we see unrest, and we see the disintegration of society, the decay of our understanding of of covenant of marriage, of what the family is, of gender, of sexuality, of just basic morality, right? What is right and wrong, good and evil, right? People look up to the heavens and they say, Lord, when are you going to return, right? Is, are things not bad enough? When are you coming? But God, brothers and sisters, does not tell us when. Do you know why? Why does God not tell us when? Because, brothers and sisters, what we are being taught is that we are not to derive our comfort from knowing the wind. But rather, what He is teaching us is that we are to derive all of our comfort from knowing the One in whom we are in. Okay? We are not to derive comfort from having the, the win answered, but from understanding the who. And this is what we see going on even in our text. This is why before the saints in Asia Minor and John is told about these 
seals that are going to be broken, which are judgments upon the earth, before He describes all of these judgments that are going to befall all the earth, which is going to likewise affect the saints, which is going to probably naturally cause many of them to also say, when, Lord, are you returning? Right? This is why before that, in chapters 4 and 5, what does Jesus do? He first provides for them a perfect picture of the one in whom they are in. Right? This is what He's doing. He, he provides for them a picture of who they're in before He reveals to them all the judgments that they're going to experience and that are going to befall them here on earth. Right? Jesus doesn't provide them first with days and times or hours. Right? He doesn't waste His time doing those things. He doesn't say, this is when persecution will cease. This is when suffering will end. But rather, He provides to them something far greater and much better. Right? He, he provides to them knowledge of God. As He revealed to them in chapters 4 and 5, that God is the one who sits on His throne sovereignly over all things, who is the Creator who brought all things into existence. He reveals to them who their Savior is. Right, The slain Lamb who is now exalted in heaven, who has the scroll, right, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and who is carrying forth the eternal degrees to their consummation. Right, This is what He tells them, because this is all that they need to be comforted. And the same is true today, brothers and sisters, for you and I. As we and believers around the world, just as it happened in the first century, and just as it will continue happening until Christ returns, right? we are not to look for times, we are not to, to pinpoint when Christ is going to return so that we might be comforted to know what's going on in this present evil age or when it will end, but rather... We are to remember and we are to think back with believing hearts on everything that God has told us about Himself. That is where the Christian's comfort ought to be derived from. And that comfort in knowing who our God is is exactly what these saints needed to hear as Jesus now breaks the seals and He begins to reveal to them what God has ordained to take place until the return of Christ. Right? This is what we see going on in our text today as these first four seals are open. Right? What we see is, is history unfolding in a series of judgments that are brought about for two purposes. Right? That is what we're going to see in these first four seals as they are open. Right? It is history being unfolded before our eyes as a series of judgments for two purposes. A salvific or a redemptive purpose and for a judicial purpose. For a redemptive purpose and for a judicial purpose. Right? They, they are brought about, these judgments are sent out into all the world to test the Christian. Right? To, to prove us. Right? Are you true or are you false? These Judgments are sent out into all the world that they might likewise prepare the saints as we are being refined by fire. These judgments likewise, though, are sent out to, to further punish and condemn the wicked who live in rebellion to God and, and refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And so with that being said, we're going to look at our text this morning under three headings. We're going to look at our text under three headings. And the first uh, heading is this. The white horse. 
the white horse. Our second point then will be the red and black horse. The red and black horse. And our third point will be the pale horse. The pale horse. Now, brothers and sisters, although there are, there are seven seals, uh, we are only going to take up the first four today. But we're going to take up the first four today because they are supposed to be taken together. Right? These first four seals are meant to be taken together. They are linked together. They are, they are grouped together so that we might understand them. Okay? And we know this for a few reasons. First, there are features which, which, uh, within the text that link these seals together. Right? We have features within the text that link these together. For each of them, what do we see? The, the lamb opens a seal and one of the four living creatures cries out, right? Come. So that's something that we see going on in each of the first four seals. Each time, what else are we given? We're given then a color of a horse. We are told something about the rider. And then we're told something about the significance of the rider and and what he has been sent to do. And so we see this. For example, in our first point today, we are told that he has sent a white horse, that that this rider on the white horse had a a bow and was uh, given a crown. And his significance was that he came or was sent to conquer and to come conquering. And we see this for seal one. We see, we see this for seal two. We see this for seal three. We see this for seal four. But then when we get to the fifth seal, that formula changes. Right? We, there's something different going on. So, so we see kind of in the text itself, these, these first four seals are, are being grouped together, lumped together, linked together in some way. I think another reason, and the, and the best reason, why we should take these four seals together is because the four horses and the four riders that we're reading about today correspond to another vision in the book of Zechariah. And because the book of Revelation is a divine commentary on the Old Testament, as it alludes to it or quotes from it some 400 plus times, it would be wise of us to to look back to what is the vision that it's quoting? Or what is the vision that it's, that is referencing and alluding to? So that we might learn as we read our text today, how we are to interpret these riders and these horses. And so if you'd like to, I'd ask you to turn with me to the book of Zechariah, and we will look at chapter 6 and verses 1 to 8. Zechariah chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. And Zechariah is the, the second to last book of the Old Testament. So, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. And keep your ears perked and, and listen to, to what we're reading and it will sound very familiar, to, very familiar to you. So, here's Zechariah chapter 6. Start at verse 1 and read to verse 8. Again, I lifted my eyes... And behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses. The second, black horses. The third, white horses. And the fourth chariot, dappled horses. All of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? 
And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones goes after him. And the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Now what do we see here as we read this text? The colors of the horses are almost identical, aren't they? We have uh, white horses, we have red horses, we have black horses. The only difference is in Revelation, you have a, a pale horse here, you have a dappled horse, which is just means to, uh, you know spotted. It's a it's a horse with with kind of spots or, or markings on it. But they're they're very close. But here in Zechariah's vision, we have these four groups of horses that are sent out to patrol the earth and and punish the nations who were oppressing the Israelites. Now, what we need to understand is that God rose up these nations to oppress them, but what ended up happening is that they were overly harsh in how they dealt with Israel. And so what God is now doing is He is going to punish these nations for their transgressions. Look with me, flip over just a couple uh, chapters over to chapter 1 of Zechariah. And I want us to read together verses 8 to 15. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out! Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. And so we see exactly that, that God had punished Israel by raising up nations, those nations overly, aggressively, and harshly uh, caused Israel to suffer. And so our Lord then sent out these four chariots of four groups of horses with their four riders to punish these transgressors. Now, though in light of this, right, in light of these visions that we read about in Zechariah chapter 1 and chapter 6, this ought to help us now to understand who the riders and the horses are in Revelation chapter 6. Especially the first rider. And this is, this is what, I, what I mean when I say that. For the first rider, there are really two very good explanations of, of who he could be. 
There are two very good explanations. What the other three writers are, are not really up for debate. Most people agree with those. But it's the, the first writer that, that good reformed folk can have differing opinions on. And so I'll just generally, I'll give you the, the two kind of general considerations that are given for this first rider in the white horse. Okay, so the, the first option would be that the rider on the white horse is Christ. Right? They would say the rider on the white horse is Christ. And then what is being described for us at the end of verse 2, this, this conquering and to conquer that is going on, that would be the advancement of the gospel as it goes forth to the ends of the earth. And so what you see is you see this white rider right, going out, proclaiming the word, the gospel, conquering the hearts of sinners. And then what you see is these last three judgments follow behind the rider in the white horse so that everywhere that the gospel goes, we see these, these judgments being poured out as well. Okay, that, is, that is one option. And one of the reasons that they would identify this white rider with Christ is Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. In that vision, we're told that, that John looks up to heaven and what does he see? He sees a, a white horse. And, and who is on the white horse? It is the one called Faithful and True, which is a, a clear reference to Christ. And so that's why many take up the and say that this the white horse is, is Christ. And that conquering and to conquer is the good news of the, of the gospel going forth. The second option, though, is this. That just as the four groups of horses in Zechariah all were grouped together and all had to do with judgment, so too do these. Right? So too do these four horses. Yet also with this view that not only do they have to do with the judgment of the ungodly, but likewise as the judgments are poured out, they have to do with the, with the testing of the faith of God's people as well. And there's another text that's in the background of our passage today that I think maybe supports that interpretation. It's Ezekiel chapter 14. And in Ezekiel chapter 14, uh, what Israel is told is that they are going to suffer persecution because of idolatry, just as the other nations did. And then in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21, this is what we are told. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Likewise, I think if you, if you remember as I read the passage earlier, this sounds very much like Verse 8 of our text today, that's because Ezekiel 14.21 is, is being quoted in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, which is going to help us learn and understand the significance of it, which we will see later on. But I want us to see that although both interpretations uh, could be true, that even if Christ is the, the white rider, it doesn't destroy anything, everything will still be true in the text, I believe that it's the, the second option that is the correct interpretation of the text. Right? Like its Old Testament counterpart, these are four judgments that are to be taken together, that are meant to punish sin and to chastise the sin of His people, but also to uh, purify 
and to perfect His children. Right? Yes, it's true. I think we, we all can agree that, that the Gospel does gallop throughout all of the earth, right? converting the hearts of sinners. But I don't think that in this text that is what it is meant to symbolize. But rather than what we are to, to understand this to be, is that it is symbolizing God's judgment upon the earth through sending evil oppressors and evil rulers to conquer and to rule over the nations who have rejected our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay? This is what he is talking about. This is, this is the people who come conquering and to conquer. Right? They are evil rulers and oppressors that he has sent as a judgment upon the nations for rejecting Christ. I mean, think about it. Even in the first century, it was military, Roman military conquest. They went about conquering other nations. And upon their success, what would they do? We read it in the history books. They would ride back into the city on what? On white horses. Right? Proclaiming their victory before the people. And so, this is a, is a vision or a picture of something that the saints in the first century easily could have identified with. Right? Throughout history, brothers and sisters, we, we all know, we could rattle off names of men who have, who have thirsted unrighteously after power and who have abused the nations and who have abused people and who have abused Christians. Right? We see that throughout all of, of world history. Right? The, the seven churches that we have read about in the book of Revelation are prime examples of that. It was because of Roman conquest, because of Roman rule, that the churches in Asia Minor suffered. That is why they were persecuted. It was because of Roman rule that they were being made to confess Caesar is Lord or die. But what does Christ keep saying though to His church through the, the conquering and the conquest of these evil rulers? He keeps saying to His churches, don't fear, continue to endure. Right? Can continue to hold fast to my name. Don't soil your garments. Right? Endure the, the persecution for the one who endures to the end, who demonstrates the, the veracity of their faith by taking up their cross and following me till death has the promise of eternal life with me. Right? That is, that is the message that he gives them. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want us to see is that when God sends these judgments, we are not to look at them as a bad thing. Rather, we are to look at them as a good thing. Right? The judgments are, of God are what the church needs. Right? It's what we need to grow and to be, uh, and to be uh, purified and to be strengthened as a church to be made fit for glory with our God. This has been the effect we see from persecution throughout the history of the church, has it not been? Think about just the, the first two centuries of the Christian church. Think about the horrendous ways in which our brothers and sisters die. Crucifixion. Being fed to wild beasts for sport. Right? Being burned alive at the stake. All in the name of destroying Christianity. All in the name of, of wiping us off of the map. And yet each and every time, what ended up happening? Right? Instead of wiping Christianity away, all it did was cause Christianity to expand and to grow and to flourish. Right? The same is true during the time of the Reformation. Right? The same is true in our day and age today. In countries like you know, Africa, or the Middle East, or China, as people are severely being persecuted, the church isn't going away. In fact, the, the church is growing. The church is expanding under that persecution. 
While wicked rulers, we need to see are a judgment upon idolaters. Wicked rulers serve us in the, in the sense that we are sanctified through their rule. Right? Through their ungodly rule. Right? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, while if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tribulation, trouble, evil oppressors are for our good as they go about conquering and looking to conquer. But brothers and sisters, I also don't want to limit this to earthly rulers because I don't think that this is merely speaking about evil earthly rulers. Satan himself is a great deceiver who is trying to conquer the earth, who is trying to conquer the the souls of God's people, trying to rip them out of God's hand to destroy them. And like with Job though, right? Satan can only do so to the degree that God permits. And the fact though that we know then that these commands are coming from the throne, it ought to bring us consolation because we, we know what Christ's prayer is for the church, don't we? In John 17, we're told, he prays to the Father that he will keep us from the evil one. What is it that each and every one of you are taught to pray every day of your life? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we know that God will answer the prayer of his son, will he not? Right? God will answer the righteous prayers of the saints, will he not? And so although we will be tested by trial, although outwardly the devil will tempt us to try to snatch our soul for his very own purposes, God will not allow it. He will not allow it. His eternal decree will be done. Every one of you whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it will never be removed from that book. The redeemed will never be lost. Christ, who is the slain Lamb, who has purchased for God a people, will continue to preserve us in the world. We will never fall away. We will never be lost. And so what great motivation. Right? What, what great motivation there ought to be for all of us to continue to push forward through every obstacle, even as evil tries to conquer. Knowing that the Spirit who lives inside of us is greater than any evil ruler or conqueror or even any demonic one. And what a message to the saints living in the first century. That although Caesar can take your earthly life, he cannot snatch your soul. For you belong to the King of Kings. And you belong to the Lord of Lords. This leads us to point number two then, brothers and sisters. Which is the red and the black horse. Please look with me at verses 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the sound, the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So what are we told here? This red horse, this bright red horse who, who is now come to take peace from the earth was given a sword. And so what do we think that this, this bright redness of the horse symbolizes? 
It symbolizes bloodshed, which comes on the heels of what? Right? Bloodshed is the result of evil rulers going about trying to conquer people. Right? So we see that, that bloodshed is a result of, of those who go about conquering. Right? With conquest comes bloodshed. Yet, what I want us to see is that God is not forcing this to happen. Right? God is not bending the will of man. He's not doing violence to the free will of man, forcing him to do something that he does not want to do. But what is we told here? That he permits it. Right? That he, he permits them to, to take peace from the earth. Right? This is something that God permits. But what do we mean then when we say God permits this to happen? Well, it's God removing that restraining grace that keeps men from doing wicked things. And He removes His restraining grace as a judgment because of man's sin. And murder and bloodshed is then what results because of the sinfulness of man's own heart. Right? This is what James says. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and you do not have, so what? You murder. You covet, you do not obtain, so what? You fight and quarrel. Right, brothers and sisters, we are living in a, in a day and age today where guns are being blamed for everything. What foolishness though. I mean, a gun doesn't have a will. Right? A gun can't pick itself up and shoot. People do. And when wicked people who have turned their noses up at God are being moved by their violent lust and passions, bloodshed and murder is what is going to result. It ought not surprise us that we live in a culture and a society that has stopped glorifying God and now glorifies violence. Right? It's the, it's the entertainment industry that decries gun violence. But it's also the entertainment industry that glorifies it in every one of their movies. Right? It's the same people who decry violence and murder and death who are in full support of abortion and the, and the murdering of unborn children. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in a world that we live in that does not value life very much, that people are going to be killing each other quite often. And so as a judgment to the world, right? God now permits them to do that very thing. That is His judgment upon the earth that we see here in the third seal. He says, have at it. Do do what you you desire then. Do do according to your own wisdom what you think is wise. You who have forsaken My counsel. You who have turned away from My statutes and My will. Yet, brothers and sisters, what I want us to also see here is that those who are being slain are not just those who who are kind of you know, generally just murdering, killing each other in war and fights. But likewise, those who are being slain are persecuted Christians as well. Right? That is what's going on here as the third seal is removed. And we know this because if we look just a few verses later in verse 9, this is what we read. And when the fifth seal is opened, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that he bore. See, that's exactly what we read. Right? This, this, this rider was able to, uh, to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And just a few verses later, 
It's the souls of those who have been slain who are calling out to the Lord. And Christians today, are they not continually being slain by the sword throughout other countries that are persecuting Christians? Just as it was in the first century. It was many weeks ago that we read about the church in Pergamum, did we not? And who was it at Pergamum that we were told about? Right? Antipas, who was murdered, who was slain. Because why? Because he bore a faithful witness to Christ. Brothers and sisters, this world does the will of its Father. We should expect this. And their Father is the devil. And who is the devil? But the one who has been a murderer from the beginning that Jesus tells us. Which is why Peter can say, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you, Christian. The world hated Christ. They put Him to death. And so they will do the very same thing to you if they can. Right? The world wants us to suffer. And yet, brothers and sisters, what we are called to is endurance, knowing how glad we will be when Christ returns in all of His glory. Now, the next horse revealed after the third seal is removed is the black horse. And we're told it's, the, it's this rider on the black horse who had a, a pair of scales in his hands. And one of the four living creatures says in verse 6, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. What we see here, brothers and sisters, is that the third rider brings famine into the world. That is the, the judgment that God has unleashed upon the world. Famine. But also what we need to see pictured here is likewise economic collapse. Right? That is all that is, that is being shown here. Now, Asia Minor was, was quite sufficient, self-sufficient with their oil and with their wine. But what they did not have is their own grain. Right? They had to import that from Egypt. Now, as one commentator tells us, these prices then that are, that are spoken of here by the third living creature reflect an 800 to 1600% inflation rate. That is what these prices reflect. One quart of wheat was enough to feed one person for one day. What did we just read though? That for that one quart to feed one person for one day, it took a whole day's wage. That is what one denarius was equal to. One day's wage. So what is the the problem now that is going on? The Christians don't have enough food to feed their families. They don't have enough to feed everyone. So what do they have to do? Perhaps they have to buy with one denarius three quarts of barley, which are far less nutritious for people. And so these decisions must be made. But did we not see this going on already in the seven churches? Were we not reading about how Christians were losing their jobs because they were not participating in those pagan festivals, engaging in sexual immorality and idolatry? Today, brothers and sisters, the same goes on. Right? We have, we have bakers who lose their business because they refuse to uh, applaud and to uh, affirm and celebrate the immorality of others. I mean, society... They're okay with us being Christians as long as we're Christians in our homes. As long as we're only Christians at church. But brothers and sisters, we can't do this, right? Uh, Christianity is not a cloak that we put on. Christianity and a Christian is, is who we are every day of our lives. But what I want us to also see is not only famine, not only economic collapse, but really all calamity comes from the hand of God. 
all calamity comes from the hand of God. Now, there are many Christians today who despise even that saying. They don't want to ever hear that, that God would send calamity upon people. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. This isn't up for debate. The debate has been settled for a long time. Listen to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45, verse 7, where we read this, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You see, brothers and sisters, right? Calamity is sent by God for the purpose of then testing us, right? Are we as Christians going to, ref- going to react in the same manner as the world in fear? Or are we going to behave like Christians? Continue entrusting our body and soul to the Lord, believing the promises that He has given to His church. Think back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 31. Right, right after telling the apostles about how much even the Lord takes care of sparrows, what does He say in verse 31? Fear not, therefore, are you not more valuable than the sparrows? And the answer is yes, absolutely you are. And if He takes care of the sparrows, if He gives them what they need, we too, brothers and sisters, can believe the promise and know that God will likewise give to the saints all that they need as well. And so the message that we need to see being conveyed in the picture of all these judgments that God has sent into the earth is really that God is the dispenser of everything that befalls mankind. Right? That, that He as Supreme Lord has absolute power over all things and everything lies under the control of His sovereign hand. But with respect to men, let us also see this, that their sin is the cause of calamity. Right? Had there never been sin, neither would there ever have been calamity and collapse. This ought to then cause each and every one of us here today to long for the day in which Christ comes and restores all things. Because trouble will only cease when we cease being sinners anymore. But until that day, He is reforming us through these judgments. And He is causing people and warning people through these judgments. And if they refuse to bow the knee, these judgments will one day destroy them. But see though how how good our God is, how long-suffering our God is. He spares the world judgment. He could have wiped this world off the face of the the planet if He wanted to. He spares. He is is long-suffering. He allows His, His Word first to go forth to the ends of the world that people might hear the warning cry. That they might repent and believe. But if they continue to reject, we can know for certain that that judgment will surely come. But this should also teach us then, brothers and sisters, that when famine comes, when economic collapse comes, when calamity springs upon us, that we need to find the safest place to go. We need to find the safest place to go. Isaiah, in chapter 26, verses 20-21 says this, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until my fury has passed. For behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. So no, brothers and sisters, 
that you have a secure place to go. That we are to exercise ourselves in the means that God has given us. Right? In, in prayer. Right? When calamity happens, examining ourselves and possibly repenting for our own sin. Right? In, in the worship of the church and exercising ourselves in this means of grace. Right? In reading the Word. And when we do those things, when we exercise ourselves in the graces God has given, we can be sure that He is there with us, protecting us with His Word. We all have a safe place to go. It is Christ. While the world is befuddled by everything that's going on, while the world is angry and shaking their fist up at heaven, we have a safe place to go. We can run to our Lord. This takes us to our third and our final point then, which will be a brief point for us this morning. This is the pale horse. The pale horse. Please look with me then, brothers and sisters, at... Verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, what's interesting is that the the Greek word here translated pale literally actually means green. The Greek word for pale means green. But when we apply it to the color of a person who, who becomes sickly, what do they look? They look kind of pale green, palish green. That's the kind of the color of a, of a corpse. And so it's this pale color that is to symbolize death. And we see then death and Hades linked together again. And they really summarize. This fourth seal is really a summary of the first three seals. It's a, it's a summary of what results from the first three seals. Right? Death comes and it, it grabs hold of the people by all different forms. Violence, famine, pestilence by wild beasts. But what we also need to see is that this doesn't just go about indiscriminately destroying everyone. But we're told that this though will, will go forth into the world and affect some which is symbolized by it occurring to a fourth of the world. Right? But here, though, is where Ezekiel 14.21 comes back into play, as we see it quoted here in verse 8. And so what's the significance of it? Well, the significance of it is this, that what we need to understand is that as these seals are revealed, they are not happening chronologically. It's not that first violence comes and after a little while... We can expect pestilence, and then you can expect famine. Right? But rather, these things are taken as a group. Right? They are to be grouped together and understood as a group together. And that they happen not chronologically, but simultaneously. Right? These are constantly occurring. Right? They occur then in the first century, and they continue to occur today, and they will continue to occur until Christ returns. Right? This is what Jesus tells us likewise in Mark 13. If you remember, he tells the, the, the saints, uh, there's going to be false Christs who are going to become, who are going to be coming saying that they are me. Right? Don't be deceived by them. But what does he say that they are to expect? Nations will rise against nations. Earthquakes and famine, right? You'll experience all these things. But what does he say? This is the beginning of the birth pains. This is not even the end. 
Right? So we need to see all those things happen simultaneously together. We see them going on at the same time all over the world. So we are not to see these, these seals as they are being unfolded as something that's happened chronologically. Okay? Yet, brothers and sisters, that we know because of sin, right, death ultimately will come to all of us in one shape or form. But brothers and sisters, we do not despair at the woes that we experience because we see now in our text today right, that, that Christ is sovereign over all of the tribulation that the earth experiences. And as His people who have been brought to faith and repentance in Him, we know that He has freed us from our sin by His blood on the cross, making us then a, a kingdom and saints and priests unto God. Right? We know, having been given spiritual understanding, that the kingdom will only come through tribulation. We need to see, brothers and sisters, that God is judging the world now. That God's wrath upon the world is His warning to them, is His call to the world to repent and believe. But what a comfort it ought to be to us in seeing these judgments. Right? Knowing that nothing can happen that has not been woven into the eternal decree of God. Right? These four horses don't ride out on their own, according to their own will and desires, but they are sent forth by Christ serving His purposes and His purposes alone. But so long as the, the world looks to establish a kingdom apart from Christ, they will continue to experience these woes. So know that what's occurring must come to pass. Right? Don't be overcome with fear and worry and anxiety. Don't let all that is occurring around us cause you to look up to the sky and say, when, Lord, are You coming? Show me in Your Word. What is the day and the time? Because I cannot wait anymore. For the only comfort for the Christian in life and death is knowing, brothers and sisters, that we are not our own but that we both body and soul belong to our faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is that that ought to steady the soul of the Christian in all times of calamity. It is this that ought to enable us to bear with much patience and endurance during the many sorrows that we must suffer here on earth. Knowing that God has a purpose for His church in every trial. And when the trials end, so too, brothers and sisters, will our need for comfort. Because when Christ returns, He will remove all of our troubles forever. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your Word this day. We are thankful, Father, that You are so wise. That You first revealed to us who You are and who our Savior is before You unfold to us the great disaster that we're going to see unfold throughout the history of this world. We ask, Lord, that You would cause us to not be those who fear and tremble and worry, but that we would be those who rest solely in our Savior Jesus Christ and in the truthfulness and the veracity of Your Word, knowing that You are our faithful God. And so, Father, we come before You this day asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.